For more than half a century, schools, especially institutions of higher education, have modified their admissions and acceptance policies to encourage a more diverse student body. Shorthanded as affirmative action, this tends to mean taking a person's race or ethnicity into consideration as one of several factors considered in the admissions process. It's been controversial from the jump, with proponents pointing to affirmative action policies as a way to address systemic disenfranchisement of communities of color. Plus, they say, it's a personal good and a campus-wide good to have qualified people from different backgrounds all existing in these rarefied higher educational spaces. But opponents say that allowing for racial characteristics to be weighted in admissions undermines a merit-based system and can even cast a pall over the achievements of students of color if they are perceived to be given some sort of advantage on racial grounds. Earlier this year, the U.S. Supreme Court threw a wrench into the affirmative action equation by essentially saying explicitly identity-based affirmative action is no longer allowed. It could implicate a whole array of tools that schools use to make sure their student bodies are diverse, and interestingly, maybe even tools that do the opposite. I'm Jennifer Smith, a reporter for Commonwealth, and today I'm joined by Oren Selstrom, the litigation director of Lawyers for Civil Rights, which has filed a complaint against Harvard on behalf of a coalition challenging its legacy admission system. Oren, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. So we're talking about legacy admissions in private higher education today. And in case this is the first time that anyone has ever heard of this, why don't you tell me what that means? So legacy preferences are something that are uh, afforded to children of alumni at uh, private and public uh, institutions of higher learning. Um, and there's also a related concept, which is donor preferences, which are preferences in admission that are given to children of uh, wealthy donors. So these are two preferences that uh, Harvard and many other institutions throughout the United States use and what we at Lawyers for Civil Rights are now trying to put an end to. So tell me about the coalition right now that is suing Harvard. So we have um, a wonderful group of organizations that we are representing in the complaint that we filed um, with the Department of Education against Harvard. Uh, three organizations that are based here in Boston, uh, the Chica Project, uh, the African Community Economic Development of New England organization, and the Greater Boston Latino Network. These are all community-based organizations that do significant work with students of color to increase uh, educational opportunities, to provide mentorship, and to increase advancement among communities of color. They're organizations that we have worked with for quite some time um, and that are joining forces with us in bringing this federal complaint against Harvard to stop these unfair and undeserved preferences. Okay, let's get into the meat of it. How did you land on Harvard specifically, and what is it doing that you're specifically objecting to? So as uh, people probably know, there was a long-running litigation against Harvard uh, brought by conservative forces who were challenging Harvard's use of affirmative action, which has always been a very modest uh, means of trying to diversify uh, a student body. Uh, that was the case that uh, ended up landing in the Supreme Court, uh, where the Supreme Court significantly scaled back on the permissible uses of affirmative action. 
So through that litigation where Lawyers for Civil Rights, my organization represented students and alumni who were supporting affirmative action, there was a great deal of data and information that came out through that litigation. Um, and through that, we and experts were able to see uh, the really staggering uh, impact that legacy and donor preferences have, uh, the fact that they go overwhelmingly to white applicants and that they are significant in terms of the effect that they have on someone's chances of admission. So that is uh, among other reasons why we targeted Harvard for the federal civil rights complaint that we filed recently. And I'm glad that you brought up at this point kind of the affirmative action question, because, of course, the court in its recent decision uh, did not come down terribly favorably uh, when it comes to the role of affirmative action in higher education. Uh, can you tell me a bit about how that case itself changed the overall higher education framework from an admissions perspective before we delve into the comparisons between legacy and affirmative action arguments? Absolutely. So over the last, you know, 40 or 50 years or so, there has been uh, the ability of institutions of higher learning, colleges and universities um, to use affirmative action as one means of making sure that their entering classes were uh, diverse. Um, always been a very modest tool uh, that colleges and universities have used um, to look at race as one of many factors that could be considered in assembling a diverse student body so that the student bodies that they uh, ended up enrolling would have students that could learn from each other where pathways to leadership could be uh, seen by a broad range of individuals and all of the benefits of diversity could be accrued. Uh, so that has been something that has been possible for the last 40 or 50 years and that many colleges and universities um, have used. Despite the fact that this is a very uh, modest tool that has been used, it has been a consistent uh, theme of those on the right, those conservative groups who have tried to go after uh, affirmative action and have ended up doing so in the courts through many different cases. Um, the last one that had now reached the Supreme Court and when the decision came down in June, um, significantly scaled back on the ability of colleges and universities to use that very modest tool. Um, and that is one of the main reasons why we then decided to file the federal civil rights complaint targeting legacy and donor preferences, essentially to say, if you're going to look at what you call preferential treatment, you really need to examine all of the real preferences that are out there, the ones that go overwhelmingly to white students. And so... One of the things that's been interesting to me in, in these discussions has been uh, basically the disproportionate impact argument and also the preferential treatment argument. So if I'm correct here, you're saying that if the court is being consistent about saying we don't want a system that we say prefers uh, people of color coming into these universities, they also should have a consistent objection to the idea that there should be preference for white students, wealthy students, uh, children who are donors. But is part of the argument that that ends up having a disparate impact on uh, students of color who don't get to benefit from that? Do you think that's something that the court would end up 
having sympathy for since it didn't really love the idea of a disparate impact argument in making the case affirmatively to diversify student bodies? Certainly as a matter of fairness, I think it is plain to almost everyone uh, that legacy preferences and donor preferences are inequitable. Uh, it makes no sense to uh, say that you are a merit-based system and then to give extra points to someone based on their last name and the size of their family's bank account. That's the opposite of merit-based. So certainly to be consistent with some of the language that we see in the Supreme Court uh, opinion in the affirmative action cases, uh, there is no way to justify legacy and donor preferences. They're indefensible. Um, from a legal standpoint, we also have very strong grounds for challenging these unfair and undeserved preferences. Um, as you have pointed out, uh, the argument around disparate impact is that these preferences at Harvard in particular, but also at many other institutions, overwhelmingly benefit white students. We know that because of the data that we have received through the Harvard case that went up to the Supreme Court. So we know, for example, that legacy and donor um, applicants are between six and 7% more likely to be admitted than those without those preferences. We know that 70% of the applicants that receive these preferences are white. We can run the counterfactual. We can look at that same data and say, if you removed legacy preferences from the equation, what would happen? And you see that uh, ad admit rates for black students, for Latino students, and for Asian students would all significantly increase. So we know that legacy and donor preferences absolutely disproportionately help white applicants and disproportionately harm applicants of color. And under federal law, if that's the case and an institution cannot justify that disparate impact, which Harvard cannot, then federal law says that, that those practices need to stop or the institution needs to stop receiving federal funds. So as these cases have kind of wound their ways through the courts, uh, there have been a number of discussions about, um, is there an affirmative case, for instance, for legacy admissions? And uh, there have been a few things that have, have come up here uh, that I'd love to get your take on. Um, one of them is the idea that uh, it would essentially increase access to elite circles for those who end up attending these elite institutions, that uh, by allowing there to be a larger proportion or a higher proportion of legacy admissions, uh, you're now increasing the likelihood that the average student would then have access to kind of those halls of power. How does that strike you? I don't think that argument holds any water. Uh, certainly it is the case that um, admission to elite institutions can be important for many people. And there was a recent study that came out just in this last month that showed um, how much elite colleges matter in the United States. But there is no uh, connection between recognizing that and then saying that legacy or donor preferences should exist. If anything, the answer is the reverse. If institutions are uh, important as they are, then it's all the more important that they have fair and equitable admissions processes that do not 
it gives somebody a boost just because they share a last name with the science building. It makes no sense to have that kind of an inequitable system, particularly when the end goal of the admissions process is so important to students who are vying to get in and to the country as a whole. And thinking about those elite institutions, because of course, uh, many of the lawsuits have have focused on the Ivies and kind of the Ivies plus that sort of small universe there. Um, does focusing on equitable access to elite institutions end up increasing their value, increasing their desirability? Because often these conversations go hand in hand about how do you increase access to a really, really strong education for everybody without overemphasizing the elite institutions, but then those tend to be the institutions that uh, folks want to guarantee access to. So it feels like a little bit of a paradox. Well, it's a great question. And I think at Lawyers for Civil Rights, we look at it as being a both and situation as opposed to either or. Um, we need to focus on access to elite institutions because they are important in the United States. Uh, because you know, 10% of Fortune 500 CEOs come from these elite institutions. Uh, three quarters of Supreme Court justices over the past half century have come from elite institutions and on and on. So it's important to make sure that those pathways to power uh, and to um, opportunity are equally open to all. Uh, but absolutely, we cannot at the same time lose sight of the fact that there are deep-seated inequities that exist throughout our education system in the United States, starting with preschools, starting with K through 12, starting with the financial barriers that people have to going on to higher education. Um, we at Lawyers for Civil Rights are looking at the whole range of ways in which equity needs to be increased. Uh, but certainly the conversation about Harvard, about elite institutions uh, is vital to that. And another thing that it raises is really highlighting for people how white privilege, how the privileges and preferences that overwhelmingly accrue to white students and white applicants are often hidden from view. They're so embedded in the culture that unless we lift them up and highlight them the way we are trying to do with legacy preferences and donor preferences, um, people may miss that, but when they see it, they recognize the unfairness and that's why it's important to go after legacy preferences and donor preferences. And thinking about other places that this could tie in, uh, we're talking about higher education here, but you mentioned, of course, that there's kind of a gamut of other institutions where you see these sorts of inequities. Um, one of the questions that has come up recently has been whether or not uh, legacy or affirmative action policies also implicate the way that students are admitted to, say, exam schools. Uh, Boston has you know, a robust exam school system, but it is not the only city and the only state that has those. Um, we use preferences, we use uh, different kind of admission metrics all the time. So how are you visualizing what is a permissible versus a kind of uh, institutional enforcement mechanism? I think first we have to start by recognizing the importance of diversity. 
And that's uh, to, to us at Lawyers for Civil Rights, uh, a first principle um, that you need to, to look at all of the advantages that accrue to everyone when all of our institutions are equally open to all and when there is diversity in membership, whether that is in schools of higher learning, whether it's in exam schools, whether it's in our elected offices, whether it's in uh, the boardrooms of corporations across America. We know that when we have diversity, um, we have more success, particularly in a global economy where everyone needs to be constantly learning from one another, challenging one another, and moving forward in the 21st century. So we need to start with that recognition of the importance of diversity. Um, and then to make sure that we can advance that in ways um, that are uh, important, that are viable, and that will reach the intended result. Um, one of the things that we've seen, unfortunately, after this recent affirmative action decision um, is those on the right who do not value diversity trying to um, use that decision in order to challenge all kinds of different diversity programs. Uh, that's a substantial overreach. That's not something that is uh, backed up by the Supreme Court decision. But what you see is organizations trying to essentially intimidate um, you know, employers or schools into uh, abandoning diversity efforts. Lawyers for civil rights, we know the exact opposite is needed. We need to push back, we need to emphasize the value of diversity, and we need to fight back through the legal system because these are, in many cases, uh, programs that are not only permitted by federal law, but in many cases are mandated by federal law. You need to have that type of inclusion and emphasis on diversity to ensure that you're not running afoul of anti-discrimination law. So one of the things that the affirmative action case that you're referencing uh, did and kind of creating a little bit of confusion here about uh, what is and isn't permitted in terms of achieving diversity goals. And so what it seemed that the court was essentially saying is that, of course, it continues to reject a, a quota based system for, you know, uh, the student body in terms of diversity and instead has said that uh, folks are allowed to essentially talk about race if it has impacted them in some way that the school could consider, um, you know, an educational or social benefit. So how have you seen schools start to try and deal with that directive? Well, you've really hit the nail on the head in terms of the dichotomy that now exists. The Supreme Court has said in many ways that higher institution, uh, institutions of higher learning cannot uh, look at issues of diversity on a group level or have significantly scaled back that ability. But from an individual perspective, the Supreme Court decision actually made a point of saying the institutions of higher learning can continue to consider race as it impacts uh, individual students. Um, and so what you are seeing now, because we're getting into admission season already, is 
uh, colleges and universities that are changing their essay questions in particular to specifically ask students, is there something about your background, uh, which may be, you know, the neighborhood you grew up in, where you came from geographically, or your racial or ethnic background that you want to share with the admissions office in a way that is, how has that impacted your life? Um, that is critical uh, to be able to still do. It's something that I think we have some of the uh, liberal justices to thank for uh, making sure that that ended up in the Supreme Court decision by really pointing uh, to the need for at least that to continue to exist. So I think you are going to see in this admission season, but going forward, colleges and universities looking for students to bring their whole selves to the table to say what is it about your background including your race and ethnicity that has influenced your life what would you like to tell us about who you are how you got to be who you are and where you want to go in the future and what you can contribute so on a broader scale how much would ending legacy admissions end up addressing the kind of undoing of affirmative action as we've understood it uh for the past many decades at this point because i think there's a read of it that can say legacy admissions though disproportionately advantaging a certain classification of people a lot more is also a relatively small proportion of overall admissions to schools and that it's more of a um if you take ours we take yours situation so kind of help me contextualize how these two things are related to each other i don't think we know the exact answer to that yet what we do know is that eliminating legacy preferences and eliminating donor preferences at Harvard would have a significant impact on the admit rate of students of color between four and 5% um, increases for black applicants, for Latino applicants and for Asian applicants. Will that, would that uh, make up for the difference of taking away traditional affirmative action? I think the answer is probably not um, all alone, uh, that we are going to need much more than that. And that's why at Lawyers for Civil Rights, we are calling for institutions to look not only at legacy and donor preferences that they may give, but to all of the other ways in which their admissions processes may work to the disadvantage of students of color. Um, there are a range of practices like early decision, for example, which uh, significantly harms uh, lower income students who need to be able to take the time to compare financial aid packages, for example. And that in turn overwhelmingly harms applicants of color. And so institutions of higher learning really need to look at the whole range of ways in which their admissions processes may be working against applicants of color and really see the level of the playing field. So the Harvard case itself could end in a few different ways. There's also, of course, um, a Department of Justice uh, investigation happening right now into its legacy practices. Uh, is the hope that Harvard just changes its admissions practices, or is there, do you think, a benefit to this reaching uh, the higher courts at some point to kind of get a distinctive ruling? Would it be better to have a case-by-case case every university decides that it's not worth it, or with the court that we have right now, 
would it be beneficial or possibly detrimental to have it before that court? I think either way could work, frankly. What we are really seeing now is a groundswell of sentiment against legacy preferences and against donor preferences. Um, approximately 75% of Americans who are polled disapprove of the use of these preferences. That's a very, very high number. Uh, and what we have seen, particularly since our complaint was filed, is more and more colleges and universities abandoning these unfair and undeserved preferences. So the momentum is clear. The public pressure is clear. Um, Harvard is on the wrong side of history on this. And I think the institution knows that. Um, I think there will be a time, hopefully not too long in the future, where we will look back and say, isn't that crazy that we ever permitted colleges and universities to let legacy preferences and donor preferences exist? Um, and so that public pressure that we are seeing is critically important. Um, and our hope is that Harvard, yes, will just voluntarily say, we don't wanna be on the wrong side of history. We know this is not fair and we're gonna stop using these unfair and undeserved preferences. But if that doesn't happen, we're fully prepared to proceed on all legal avenues to make sure that that equal playing field exists. Are you pushing for a legislative strategy as well? We're certainly in touch with legislators on both the federal and state levels who have brought a range uh, of different bills to the table to either outlaw uh, legacy and donor preferences or here in Massachusetts to tax institutions that want to maintain them. Um, so that is in many ways another public pressure point that can be brought to bear to ultimately end these practices once and for all. And I'm thinking about where kind of the tentacles of this could go in various situations. Uh, so to, to get back to a little bit of an earlier point, um, what's the position on preferences in higher ed admissions in general here? I'm thinking about uh, athletic preferences because forgive me, we're in Massachusetts. So we all have very recent memory of Operation Varsity Blues where there is uh, a way to kind of get in through the side door if you are an elite enough athlete or uh, give the impression of being an elite enough athlete. So are there any other possible preferences that might be on the horizon, uh, perhaps to get around those concerns? All of those preferences really need to be looked at, and they need to be looked at by each college and university that employs them. Uh, because you're exactly right, athletic preferences um, are also a substantial boost, uh, and they often go to you know what's sometimes called you know country club sports that are dominated by white applicants. So it's another uh, type of preference that, in many ways, can harm applicants of color. Um, so many of the different processes that are used. Uh, by colleges and universities really need to be examined at this point. We are at a critical point in our nation's history when it comes to education access. This Supreme Court decision really was a bombshell, not an unexpected one, but one that is really going to change the landscape of what it means uh, for admissions to institutions of higher learning. Are we going to still be a country that allows these kind of elitist preferences that go overwhelmingly to white applicants? 
or our colleges and universities going to step up to the plate and say, we're better than that. We're going to look from A to Z at all of our admissions processes and make them as fair and equitable as they can be. That is our hope. And we will continue to press that legally if institutions do not voluntarily come to that conclusion themselves. Right. And I think the last question is sort of the implication on the flip side here, which is, are there concerns that later court decisions or later lawsuits might target things that are, for instance, a proxy for race that have been upheld by the Supreme Court before? I'm thinking of Texas's sort of top 10 system where the top 10% of students from, for instance, an assortment of geographic locations can be admitted to the prestigious state institutions with the pretty clear goal of making sure that geographic diversity uh, and income diversity are reflected in those schools. Is that something that you're worried might later be on the chopping block? You know, these battles are never won uh, definitively. It's ongoing uh, struggle. It has been, always has been, always will be. So at Lawyers for Civil Rights, we know that uh, this is not the last chapter to be written, that yes, there already are uh, challenges that take on just the kind of process that you are referencing. Um, you reference the Boston exam school case, which Lawyers for Civil Rights is also involved in. And that, again, was based on a range of factors, including you know, zip codes and geography, and yet has been challenged and is now pending in court. So we know these are going to be ongoing court battles. Um, and we are fully prepared to defend diversity, to defend our clients' interests, uh, to make sure that those interests are respected. Um, but yes, this is not the final chapter. Uh, that's why we felt it was so important to push back, to push back hard and to push back quickly after the Supreme Court's affirmative action decision, and I fully expect that we'll continue to do so in the years ahead as well. Okay, well, until the next chapter starts, for now, Oren Selstrom, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you for having me.